Welcome to How to Enjoy Experimental Film. In 1972, Stan Brakhage, giant of experimental cinema, though he largely rejected the term, received a film bearing the title of OMO, O-M-M-O. He referred to it as the most worked-on, hand-painted film that he had ever seen, but there's a lot more to the story than that, and I'm thrilled to say that the film's maker joins me for this episode. Myron Ort, also known as Zeno Okeanos, is a true maverick filmmaker, as well as a painter, teacher, musician, repairer of Cuban drums, expert on Latin American and jazz music, record collector, and hot rodder. As a teacher, he has worked with figures as diverse as the late great experimental filmmaker Barbara Hammer, and the screenwriter Stephen Zalian, who penned the screenplays for Gangs of New York, Red Sparrow, and Schindler's List. His filmmaking work brought him into contact with a veritable who's who of experimental filmmakers, including Brackage, Jordan Belson, James Broughton, Bruce Bailey, and Ben Van Meter. His own films occupy places in nearly all walks of experimental film, ranging from hand-painting, as I mentioned, found footage, documentary, film portrait, and diary film, but all filtered through a vision that is quite unlike anyone else's engagements with these sort of films. Almost all of his films are available online, and the DVDs can also be purchased at his website, as well as his album of Latin jazz-inflected ambient music called Paradise Island, which you're currently listening to in the background. I started by asking this Renaissance man if there was anything he didn't do. Very significantly, and maybe relevant to this conversation of all the arts that I have not at least dabbled in, I would have to say acting. I, I, I fear that I would be just way too self-conscious somehow. Uh, so I, I have great respect for people who do acting and, and, a, and a certain apprehension about doing it myself. I, yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I never tried. I never tried, really. I'm from Los Angeles. I was born in Los Angeles. Um, Went to grammar school, junior high school, high school, and two years at UCLA, and then I moved to Berkeley in 1960. Was uh, that to study or? Yeah, well, I could have studied at UCLA. It, it was to get out of Los Angeles. At that time, the, the air was bad in Los Angeles. They, they called it smog. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, you know, you, you could choke. Uh, and there were a variety of reasons, you know, wanting to just go on an adventure and leave home and yeah. go up to, uh, well, also, and I've told this story recently to somebody, it was a way of getting out of gymnastics. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, in my youth, was a, a gymnastics champion. And uh, by the time I got to UCLA, you know, uh, I was a valuable member of that gym team in addition to whatever else I was studying and, and so forth. And it, it, it came to a point where I wanted to get out of it, uh, but you know, the coaches uh, don't want you to because you're a valuable member of a small team. And by moving to Cal Berkeley, by going moving up to Berkeley and, and uh, enrolling in, in Cal, uh, I, it was a, a way to get out of that, even though the, the, the coach up there at uh, Cal Berkeley wanted me to do that and I I just refused he wasn't happy about that uh, I guess I was in search of uh, of beatniks 
which had already it already had passed. I mean, by 1960, uh, the beats were pretty much gone. There were remnants to be found. Mm. You know, a house in Berkeley. Oh, uh, Allen Ginsberg used to live there, or 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 some leftovers on the streets on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. You would see a few leftovers of uh, people that were obviously part of that. And, and, and growing up in uh, Los Angeles, there was a beat scene, you know, uh, cafes and, and all, all, all that. And so I was fascinated by that. But it, it was the generation prior to mine, pretty much. Art seems to have always been a part of your life as far as your writings are, that are available are concerned, but do you recall what sparked your interest? I mean, ever since I can remember, I was attracted to the arts. I mean, even like, a, 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 let's say, at 11, 12 years old, trying to make little paintings. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and the musical interest started back then, too. Uh, you know, I think I made my first little drum. Uh, well, actually, my musical background is even at five or six or whenever they start, I played the clarinet. And then I pretty much gave that up. And then I was fascinated by uh, Afro-Cuban drumming that was it was in the air, you know, on the radio. It was a type of music that was that was complex and fascinating to me. And I wanted to know how it worked and making a drum then. So that, I think I started painting and, and had a little drum. And in both of those arts, I, I, I felt that there was something I didn't know. Uh, you know, how do they do that? You know, you kind of wonder, you hear, you hear things in the music, well, what's going on there? Um, same thing in art. Um, and at that time, which would have been the 50s, the mid, mid to late 50s, uh, in Life magazine, you would see a whole article about Jackson Pollock, or you would see articles about other abstract expressionist painters. And um, wow, you said, gee, I could do that. Uh, but it really wasn't until I moved up to uh, Berkeley, and then even after a couple of years uh, going to San Francisco State uh, for an MA that I ran into some people that knew how it worked. <laughs> so, uh, that's a whole other story. Um, but early on, I think even when I was still living in Los Angeles, I probably later on took up still photography. And I think what happened in still photography is that um, to be a good still photographer, you have to somehow have an intuition about when to click the camera. Mm. Uh, now with cinema, the camera is running all the time. Click, 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 click. You're bound to you're bound to catch it in there somewhere. So <laughs> I think the, the the transition from still photography to uh, cinema uh, uh, that's the root of it for me. And from there, what sort of prompted you to head into the sort of experimental direction with your works? Well, that's another good question. I I don't think I was much aware of any kind of too much alternate cinema while I was still in high school and uh, living in Los Angeles. Back then there was a theater on La Cienega Boulevard called the Coronet Theater, which did show uh, 
alternate type of cinema. It, it, it was more interested. In fact, I forget the name of the man who ran that. Uh, but interestingly enough, later I was to come to find out that actually in his early years, Stan Brackage actually was a projectionist at the Coronet Theater. But when I moved up to Berkeley, um, in the Bay Area, we had the beginnings of, uh, of a revival of experimental filmmaking. Uh, Bruce Bailey, uh, uh, Chick Strand, they started the Canyon Cinema. I used to go to the Canyon Cinema when it was uh, in the backyard of where Bruce Bailey was living and films were projected on a sheet in the backyard type of thing. So I, I knew about experimental filmmaking and it looked like, oh, gee, there's a path. Oh, I could do that. This, this, this was a, a second wave of Bay Area film, experimental filmmaking. The earlier wave was, uh, had already passed. And you had, uh, you know, the, the, the era of Sidney Peterson and James Broughton and, um, and even uh, Jordan Belson, they were all that uh, earlier wave of San Francisco Bay Area experimental filmmaking. And so this was a, se a, a second wave. I think I was just always prone to looking for something, which leads me to another um, part of the equation, which is in roughly 1958, when I was, uh, I, somebody I knew had some peyote cactus that said, gee, if you eat these things, uh, it could be very interesting. So that was the psychedelic, psychedelic pioneering. So the same attitude of openness that I had to all kinds of alternate forms, everything from abstract expressionism to jazz to Afro-Cuban music, whatever, not all my friends were receptive. And uh, so then having these psychedelic experiences back in 1958, the only references we had back then were uh, that Aldous Huxley had written a book called The Doors of Perception. And he talked very specifically in there about how it gave him the answers to what artists saw. And, and I, that, you know, because I mentioned earlier that I was searching for, I thought, what's going on here? I would look at a Kandinsky painting and I go, why can't I do that? What's going on there? Uh, and I think Aldous Huxley had that kind of experience. He, he says so in the book that it showed him uh, something about what artists had been seeing. Uh, now, when I moved up to Berkeley, there, there was no there was no psychedelic scene. That that was only going to happen a few years later, uh, when somebody managed to s synthesize LSD and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I did some of that. Uh, and, and that was right at the beginning of experimental filmmaking in the Bay Area. And uh, there was a group of us that all had that similar experience, kind of well known, the 60s Bay Area scene, which was informed in part by psychedelic experiences and people investigating Eastern philosophies and all of that. I gradually made the transition out of aspiring to narrative filmmaking to making films as an artist, visual, primarily visual films, uh, not, not narrative-based films. Now, that isn't to say I didn't always love 
narrative film and went to three films a day. I mean, I, I mean, as a film student, we saw many. And, and one of the courses I did take was a history of experimental film at San Francisco State that went back to all the things you were referring to, Len Lai and the Parisian filmmakers in the 20s. I mean, that, that, that was really important. Man Ray and uh, Cocteau. And, uh, in fact, later, uh, I believe, I forget, I think it was Standish Lauder wrote a book called Cuba Cinema, which primarily uses ballet mechanique by Leger as, as the source for that terminology. Now, what we were doing, what I was doing, it being primarily visual, it's a little harder to talk about. There's no vocabulary. Now, we had our own vocabulary. We had our own language about visual things, which had come, let me briefly say where that came from. It came from a professor back in Ohio named Hoyt Sherman, who probably had a PhD in, and he had a student named Harold Greger who, had a PhD, who got a PhD in painting. And he taught these other friends of mine. So when I said uh, earlier that I didn't understand what was going on when I looked at a Kandinsky painting, how does he do that? Um, suddenly I met some people that had a language to talk about what was going on, not to say they could make you know how to do it, but you would have an insight about what was going on. And, and that language came from the world of what was called Gestalt psychology, not Gestalt therapy, which became popular, but Gestalt psychology, which is primarily a German uh, thing. Uh, there were, uh, Wolfgang Kurler had written a book called Gestalt psychology. And then more specifically, um, Rudolf Arnheim wrote a book called Art and Visual Perception, which used that language. So we had ways of talking about how to make compositions, what was going on in modern art, what, and, and, and what was going on with Rembrandt, and what was going on with Matisse, and what was going on with Kandinsky, and what was going on before that, and what was going back in 1427 with Masaccio. We had a language. Now, for a while, when I started teaching film, I would refer to that language, but I gave it up. It's not popular. People don't like to hear it. People like to believe art is mysterious and magic, and it has to do with self-expression. The whole idea that art, or art history, had an evolutionary development akin to scientific discovery is not a popular notion. Uh, although, obviously, they talk about Helmholtz's color theory and the advent of impressionism, you know, uh, but not a lot of other stuff, not, not, not a lot of other stuff uh, about how the eye works. Um, so I, part of me views art history as the evolutionary of use, the evolution of useful tools for making art. And it gives me a way to understand uh, what some of the early abstract painters were doing, uh, some of who, which who, who were grounded in European traditions, like Hans Hoffmann, the, the abstract painter, pretty much had probably came to New York. Um, but it also gave me an insight to what Brackage and what I was doing. It, it, well, it, it was the inspiration for what I was doing. So when Brackage saw my early experiments with multiple exposure, which was done with the eye of a painter, I think he was influenced by that because right after that, he has a sequence in his film Under Childhood, which shows that he was inspired by the notion of multiple exposures without being so obsessive about keeping track 
of what was going on. Not, not literally superimposing for figurative or narrative reasons. So it's difficult to, to talk about a primarily visual film. Myron Ort's association with Stan Brackage began when Brackage saw Myron's film Love Must Love, which captures something of the psychedelic mood of the 60s Bay Area, and was made in collaboration with Myron's girlfriend at the time, the actress Donna Germain. Brackage asked for a print of the film, for which he traded some rolls of footage of his own. He was also very impressed with Ort's film Islands, and Myron would further explore the ideas of love and meditation in the Om series, also known as the Psychedelic series, in the 70s. He made these also in collaboration with Donna Germain. Viewing these explosions of colour and light might lull the viewer into mistaking these for hand-painted films, but that in fact they're not. The Psychedelic series is not hand-painted specifically. It's, it's a lot of multiple exposures through different filters and spectacular th things that happen from that multiple exposure. Mm. Exquisitely beautiful things. Um, too, too pretty for, for the art audience in a way. <laughs> <laughs> I had that, uh, I, I'm being cynical there in a, yeah. in a way. Uh, for a while there, I pursued these abstract paintings uh, and then I brought them all down to Los Angeles where I had friends that were making this, those kind of films, minimalist films, uh, minimalist paintings. And one gallery person just said, oh, they're too pretty. <laughs> so the, the, that genre, they just want black. And, and I did have a penchant for superimposing, rather, not a completely randomly. Um, I think I pioneered in that in multiple exposure, which was something we all liked back then. And, and of course it has its roots. You see a lot of multiple exposures in the films in the twenties in, in what they called montage sequences, very controlled. Now, I think in the early days, most experimental filmmakers were, did very controlled multiple exposure. They knew exactly what they were. And most of the time it was uh, figuratively or narrative based uh, putting one image on top of another. We were experimenting, and I particularly was experimenting with just the complexity that would happen, you know, informed by cubism and abstract painting. Um, I had a general idea of what I was superimposing. So let's say I would, one, one layer would be images that would create a mat that I knew that would have areas that would fill in with other imagery on the second exposure and mm. so forth. And I once uh, remember meeting up with uh, uh, Bruce Bailey at the lab. We both used to go to multi-chrome labs in San Francisco and the films would be on a table and sometimes he'd write me a note and sometimes I would encounter him and we'd look at something. He, he once said to me about some images that I was doing, he said, oh, that would be a masterpiece if you had intended it. <laughs> uh, now, he was a very intentional filmmaker, very intentional, although obviously he explored the fortuitous. Yeah. And, um, and of course the word fortuitous comes up very early on in Krakauer's theory of film. I don't know if you, one of the many books you read as a film student, you have to be, you have to be there ready to capture the fortuitous, not be overly programmed by your, storyboard or your script or whatever. I mean, it's important to, to, to be a filmmaker and be ready to grab images when, when they're happening. 
More difficult for audiences influenced by abstract expressionism in particular was Myron's film Omo, which I mentioned earlier. The film itself is a truly extraordinary feat of direct working on film, using hand-painted mirror imagery among a multitude of other techniques to encourage the viewer to find their own interpretations of the imagery. I, in, the, in the 70s, I sent Brackage a, uh, that, that, that hand-painted film that I worked on so much and flipped it over. And I mean, it went back and forth to the lab numerous times. I mean, I'm talking about uh, every technique I could think of, starting out with a hand-painted film, which was probably 8 millimeter at first, then blown up to 16 millimeter. Then I guess I had the lab make a negative of it. And then they take and bypack the positive with the negative and so forth and so on. I just kept working on it. And so I sent it to Brackage and he just watched it over and over again. Um, he said, this is the most worked on hand painted film he'd ever seen, but I'm sending it back to you because I, I can't decipher a metaphorical thread. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I took the phrase, no metaphor and put it into an anagram server and came up with other titles for the film. So all those other films of the no metaphor series are all anagrams of no metaphor because at first I felt bad that Stan in a way rejected the film or he just, I don't know what to make of it. I'm sending it back to you. I don't know what to say. He said, I just don't know what to say. Now this is part of the, okay. So, um, and, and, and later years later, a friend of mine said, well, you never meant to have a metaphor. What's a, why is he, you know, it's like, I, so suddenly I felt liberated. Yeah, of course I never meant. But by the way, I also took that film in my travels, but I was trekking around and I had that film with me, Omo. When I got to Austria, I visited um, Peter Kobelka, who Stan Braggage is called the greatest experimental filmmaker. I'm having lunch with Kobelka and then we go over to his studio, which was uh, a Nazi bunker. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't destroyed. He's got his editing room anyway. He's looking at the film, and he didn't get very far into the film. And he said, "Well, no, no. What he would do with it is he would catalog every frame, and then com make a, and compose compose like a piece of uh, a, a modern music. He would compose it basically. But now we're talking about thousands and thousands of frames of these. You know, so that's the story of of, of Omo." My, my brain went straight to ink blots. What am I trying to see? What is my mind trying to see in this? And what does that right. say about my relationship to the film? So. Well, I think that's what ink blots are. There's something about that you, you take a little random little uh, doodle, hmm. but when you fold it over like that, it, it has some new authority somehow. Hmm. The rejection of Omo by Brackage and subsequent assertion that there had not been a metaphorical intention prompted Myron to produce a series of films collectively called No Metaphor, in which each of the relatively short film's titles is actually an anagram of the words No Metaphor. For example, A Prone Moth, Tamper Oh No, Phantom Or, and A Poem Thorn. Each of these is a hand-painted film directly challenging the viewer to find in the images their own meaning, without there necessarily being any intended meaning on the part of the filmmaker. The same notion is also found to an extent in Ort's series of films Neti Neti, which in Sanskrit means not this, not that. So I generated all these film titles uh, out of just no metaphor. 
So all those, all those other titles are just anagrams of no metaphor. And ironically, they sometimes develop new meaning, like uh, prone yeah. moth is a direct reference to brackage. I just went to town liberating myself, know, knowing that my films, on the other hand, would not have any intentional metaphorical thread, which was okay. The problem with brackage, and it was my problem, was that people would look at my films and say, oh, you're just imitating Stan Brackage, when actually I was doing it simultaneously, or, or even before. And, and I, I can't in public really go out and claim, oh, Bra I think Brackage was the influence. I think he was, he was quoting my film Omo here, or I think Under Childhood is right after he saw what I did with multiple exposures in an eight millimeter film. I can't say that. But see, the idea that you would make a film without a narrative and without a, a metaphor, is not very acceptable. The ambiguity of audience interpretation in relation to a pointed lack of metaphorical intent is a thread that runs through almost all of Myron Ort's work. Personally, I'm saddened that the films are not currently better known, though the good news is that pretty much all of his output is available for free on Vimeo and YouTube, courtesy of the filmmaker himself. I also believe that there is a lot to talk about in relation to these films, which does warrant further discussion, so I do live in hope that more will come to Myron's films and think about them anew. So far, we're only just scratching the surface of Ort's output here, so in the next episode we're going to take a closer look at his portrait and found footage films, including the epic five-hour cycle Iconoclastes. Here, to close part one of our conversation, are some thoughts from Myron about reaching an audience with experimental films. A lot of what is significant in experimental film comes about from something I didn't do a whole lot of, which is show your films in public. There are certain things, when you show films in public, which I mean, you know, to a, an audience of people who like experimental films, mm -hmm. some things are going to click and they're going to, people are going to enjoy or they're going to laugh or they're, you know, and you're making films knowing about that. Now, Brackage didn't do that. One of the things fundamental to what, what I was doing right from the start was not worrying about the subject matter. But as a filmmaker, like I said, you can't avoid the subject matter coming into play if you're aiming the camera in the real world. And what we did is later, like I said, you looked at the footage and maybe you edited it together in, in some, some, some kind of metaphorical thread. Yeah. But when it came to Omo, um, it just went on and on and there was no, no thread. But, so I did not personally choose that path of wanting to make a living off my art other than as an art teacher. I, I think that inspiration came from realizing that uh, going back to the 20s in Paris, and you realize, oh, some of these people didn't have to worry about making a living. That's why they could do, you know, either had aristocratic money or they had patrons. I, I would like to not have the that pressure, because I, I saw what would happen when people tried to survive through their art. I, 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 I didn't want to take that gamble. 
If you enjoyed what you've heard today, please do click subscribe. We'll be back with more from Myron in the next episode. But in the meantime, why not search for some of his work on Vimeo and YouTube? And if you're a fan of home media, the DVDs are available on his website. Thanks, of course, to Myron for being so generous with his time and allowing us to play some of his own music. The music for this show is written by Gabriel Ness, and thanks, of course, to you for listening. <laughs>